Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. You'll be amazed to discover that today we're going to focus on Victoria and the debacle that is its management of the coronavirus epidemic. We're going to be talking about the roadmap that looks like a road to nowhere, the arrest of a pregnant mother in her own kitchen by a couple of burly Victoria police officers uh, for the crime of incitement, and we'll talk about that. Uh, We'll be talking about the economic consequences of the plan with literally hundreds of thousands of extra jobs slated to be lost over the next two months as we supposedly emerge from the lockdown. Uh, We'll also be talking about uh, the police surveillance going on in Victoria. And uh, and finally, a bit of a window into the media manipulation uh, that's going on, the role of the media generally, but also the, uh, the Victorian Premier Dan Andrews and the way he and his supporters are using the media uh, to shut down debate and put, push their very particular view of the pandemic and how it should be managed. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by my IPA colleague, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Andrew, it's great in every sense of the word to actually have you in the studio. And This, I- this is the first time I have left my uh, postcode for... Two months, I think, at least. Well, there you go, um, with a permit. Uh, with a permit, yes. Um, so we'll be, I'll be Just very, to clarify. I'll yes. be very much looking forward to your, your take on what's going on, Andrew. Um, but, of course, I now need to throw to my co-host from RMIT University, Chris Berg, not only to set the scene for what's going on, but, Chris, is it actually okay for looking forward a product of the Institute of Public Affairs to only be talking about Victoria this week? I'm getting a little bit tired of apologising for talking about Victoria, Scott. I don't know about you. Um, Victoria, I don't know whether listeners know this, is 25% of the national economy, or at least it was 25% of the national economy (laughs) in 2019. 2020 might be a very different situation. So as you pointed out, um, the Andrews government has released a roadmap to um, return to uh, some sense of normalcy, uh, a roadmap that spells out a path all the way to what they describe as COVID normal. Um, Listeners will know that this has been a very controversial roadmap, basically because if I'm going to try to sum up what makes this roadmap controversial, it requires us in Victoria to defeat the virus more comprehensively than anywhere else in the developed world in order to, um, uh, in order to, what I'm going to just say, have Christmas together with our families. So um, to break that down a bit, um, there are lots of different stages in this roadmap, right, Scott? So there's, you know, the first stage, the second stage. This is a change from there was going to be traffic light colours. There was going to be phases anyway. So there's steps now, I should say. There are steps. There are four steps. But the last step, the step in, or the second last step, the step in which we are allowed to see anybody else in our home except for a nominated family bubble of our choosing requires there to be zero cases in Victoria for uh, new cases in Victoria for a fortnight. There is no country on the planet, as far as I am aware, that can achieve that threshold. This is not just a conservative approach to coronavirus. It is the most conservative in the world, and it is a—it's it, fantastical. It's—it's it's imaginary. It's—it's it's completely un, implausible. It's—it's. I—I—I it's, um, I, I find it hard to sort of overemphasize how unlikely it is that we will ever achieve the goals on this roadmap. Yet they are the ones we are being told that we have to if we're going to do something as basic as having Christmas with our family. Andrew, I'm going to throw to you. I don't necessarily have a question, apart from maybe a sort of rovesque what the. <laughs> well, uh, you're, you're a child of the '90s, so well, you'll get this. Well, I'll throw an. I'll, I'll try. I'll try a question for Andrew. There. I mean, in, and take us back because in the lead up, this was discussed as a plan, as a roadmap. So, so partly what we actually want to unpack, Andrew, is um, the expectations that were being uh, floated around what this was going to be and then what it was actually how it was actually presented on Sunday and how that then was received because uh, it's important to talk about the plan but what we're very much trying to get into today is the state of mind in in Victoria the business community citizens 
um, as they're grappling with this. And so I think it's a, it's a bit of a story of what was expected, what actually happened and what the reaction to that was. Yeah, I think they had billed it as, um, you know, here's, here, as, here's what's going to happen to get back to normal. And so people had sort of geared themselves up for, I think, first that there would be an immediate winding back of some of the harsher restrictions and that didn't happen. Um, was in fact the next two weeks are going to be the same as the preceding however many it has been. Um, and I have to admit that my sense of time has been completely destroyed mm. by this. Um, the passage of time just does not track with me anymore at all But because um, every day is the same. But I think I thought... I'm, I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you can make it for the recording yeah, time though. I, I, have to, so I, I have to say I thought um, that... Any certainty is better than no certainty. So even a plan that was vague or, or made up would have some positive effect. And when I went to pick up my son from childcare the other day, um, we're allowed to use childcare on days where my wife is working at the hospital. Um, went to, and I was having a chat with the staff there, and they seemed to be in that mindset that it was a it was good that at least um, a plan existed. And I'm not sure how many people scratched below that surface but anyone who did quickly found out exactly what chris said that these thresholds are going to be almost impossible to hit that christmas with your family is off the cards the idea that the idea that we'll be in a stadium you know i mean melbournians go on about this a bit but like we have lost a pretty big part of the culture that knits together this society which is the the ritual of the football season we're going to lose the test match. Um, so it's things like this, just the ordinary markers of what normal life in Melbourne would be. If you look at these thresholds, as Chris said, um, we're not getting back to normal anytime soon. And so I think that initial feeling, and I even had it, I was like, well, at least they've decided to put some numbers around it. And then as soon as I read what the numbers were, hmm. that little boost of um, happiness that you get from certainty, which is, I think, the 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 commodity that has been really lacking over the last six months is any kind of certainty. Um, and just on that, just while I'm saying that, why they couldn't have come out with a plan like this. If this was the plan, right, and if it was based on modelling that is now, there's now epidemiologists are going through saying, well, this is a little bit shoddy work. Well, why didn't they come out with a plan months ago? I mean, if it was going to be this shoddy. But anyway, any kind of certainty would give you a boost, but... You know, as I say, the the boost doesn't last long. Yeah, so when you look at it. So it's good. It, but it's it comes. Good. Sorry to interrupt. It just comes back to. Uh, I don't think that we are ever going to be in a situation where there is not a very low level of community transmission of this virus, even if we have a wonderful, um, high quality vaccine. It will be with us. There's the, you do not put something like this back in the cage. The only viruses or the only diseases we've genuinely beaten are those that we have beaten over the course of decades. And, you know, we might get there with this and wouldn't that be wonderful? But it's just not realistic to believe that you're going to have zero cases. And it's utterly mm -hmm. absurd to imagine that you need to have zero cases in order to have some semblance of normal life. And I'm not talking some semblance of normal life, like really densely packed nightclubs every evening. I mean, some semblance of normal life so that you can see your family. Yeah. So, semblance of normal so, life. No, that, that's absolutely right. And that's what we've been saying, obviously, on, I'm looking forward only for six months. So, but we're now in the situation. So they are pursuing an eradication strategy. So exactly the strategy that is completely um, infeasible. So, but they won't say it. Like, if, if Dan Andrews really wanted to deliver certainty, what he should have done is, is stood up and said, you know, actually, flattening the curve, that's all over. We actually dumped that three months ago. We just haven't got around to telling you. So today I'm making it official. At, we, we've we've uh, followed the Grattan Institute's advice and it's officially eradication strategy. So basically we're in lockdown until there is no virus left in Victoria. Now, that actually would have been telling the truth. But instead, their political antenna was such that, oh, well, people are demanding a plan. We better give them a plan. Oh, well, let's put some, let's put some markers in there. Be uh, you know, oh, you've got to hit this target. Because remember, remember, it's essential that the Victorian government has a way of blaming Victorians for whatever <laughs> goes wrong. If you don't actually get these restrictions lifted, it's remember, Victoria, it's your fault. 
Yeah. That's been the strategy so all... I, so I, I have a theory on the um, elimination strategy issue. Yeah, but just... Um, uh, absolutely. So, but this, this is the, the dissonance that was there. Their desire hmm. to communicate and spin, and we'll be coming back to this later on, and, and, and tell uh, this story... Um, uh, was in conflict with the fact that their actual strategy is eradication. And it's the best thing that's happened this week is the penny is starting to drop, Chris. It's not just yeah. listeners of Looking Forward now who understand this and followers of the Institute of Public Affairs who are starting to see that we're living in a police state with a lying premier who's telling a, a, a rubbish story. Um, uh, the, the scales are actually falling from the eyes. Chris, sorry, your point was. So, so I have a, a theory about the elimination the denial that we're following an elimination strategy. So the um, Commonwealth government and the state government have set, been telling us that they're following what is a aggressive suppression strategy. Now, um, when I look at a target of zero for first 14 days, and then for 28 days after that to become COVID normal, and then simultaneously, they're also telling me that they're not trying to eliminate the virus. Well, I think that we have very different definitions of what elimination is. I think that when they have been telling us that they're not following an elimination strategy, they mean that they're not seeking to eliminate the virus globally. So they, we can't eliminate because we'll always have a hotel quarantine system. There'll be some way we're, we're, we're going to have borders that are somewhat porous inevitably. I think that's what they mean, that they can't guarantee that there'll never be any cases. But when we say elimination, we have been frustrated by the fact that they're trying to get rid of it in this country entirely, or at least in this jurisdiction entirely. These are two different definitions. And I think the frustration that we have is the result of a deliberate decision not to clarify that with us. They don't want to point that out. And th hence this dancing around that we've been, that we've been dealing with. Yeah. And, um, then they, and then they turn well, now, now six months. And then they turn around and they say, oh, where do, where do conspiracy theories come from? And it's like, <laughs> well, they come, they come from, one, your rampant dishonesty, and two, the fact that, and this should never be forgotten, what is happening in Victoria is entirely the product of government negligence, entirely their fault. They did this. That's what happened. They mismanaged the hotel quarantine system. Now the country is stuffed. That's what happened. So let's not forget that. And no one's head rolled for that. So where do conspiracy theories come from? Well, you've lied to us for six months and then having stuffed it up, no one was held to account. So why wouldn't you start to believe the worst about people's motives? Why are they pursuing this strategy instead of other strategies that have been pursued in similar jurisdictions around the world? Why have we got the harshest one? Um, and now I'm, you know, I am not inclined to impute um, that you know necessarily you know ill intent that they are actually trying to establish trying trying to establish a dictatorship or something. But if they're wondering why it is that um, opposition to this often comes couched in well, I would say often is probably an exaggeration, but sometimes comes couched in a kind of conspiratorial undertone, um, then the answer is simply their own behaviour gives everyone reason to be suspicious. I mean, frankly, that's the truth. In my, in my view, I just think that their, their dishonesty and lack of accountability has shattered people's confidence, not only in this government, but perhaps over time it will shatter people's confidence in government itself. And that's what we saw with the police overreaction. Yeah, So, and, and what we've seen is an overlap in, in two very particular types of organised lying. Um, the first type is common or garden variety political lying, which is uh, where you're never held to account and there's always a reason why it's somebody else's fault. Uh, in this case, the people of Victoria. Yeah, it's, it's always very convenient fault. villain. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and there were hotel security guards who were untrained and, and didn't follow procedures um, who were hired by somebody but we don't know exactly who. And, oh, and I've, I've apologised for that. And by the way, there's an inquiry going. So there's common or garden variety political lying going on. Um, but then the other thing is uh, the public health profession, um, which has been dominating this. Um, so uh, we're constantly told that everything's on the advice of experts. Oh, by the way, that's a lie. That's a lie. We've just discovered in the last 48 hours that the chief medical officer in Victoria, Brett Sutton, when asked about the curfew, which is 8pm, mind you, 8pm curfew in Victoria, he, he, they said, well, you know, why, why, was, why did you come to that? He said, oh, well, I had nothing to do with it. 
That came from the police. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't my recommendation. It's not a health measure. Uh, that's uh, Stephen Duckett from the Grattan Institute, um, former head of the health department. He's confirmed it's not, it's not evidence-based. So a lie. Right, another lie. But anyway, the point is, so we have political lying. But then you have this public, this public health type of lying. And I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not talking about the epidemiologists or doctors or whatever presenting their evidence about their stupid, you know, the, you know, the stupid model runs or whatever. I'm talking about this business of how you communicate with people about public health. These are people who are, whose day jobs are, how can we convince people not to smoke? How can we convince people to reduce their sugar intakes? How can we convince people to wear seatbelts? How can we convince people to... Um, uh, wear bicycle helmets. Oh, actually, that's too hard. Let's just make it mandatory, be the only country in the world where bicycle helmets are mandatory. But that, that whole profession, which has been unleashed on us by this, um, where we're constantly nudged towards things. It's, it's, it's like it's nudging on steroids. Even the way they managed the expectations around what was going to happen on Sunday, they, they, they trawled in, the, in a compliant media the idea, well, actually, maybe September 14th won't be the day that restrictions are lifted. Oh, maybe there'll have to be a little bit of a tail, and I oh, will be presenting a plan. So the, this softening up of the public, which is, you know, political advisors sitting around Andrews, sitting down with these, these public health communication people. They're not doctors. They're health communication professionals. It's just another variety of organised lying. Isn't it, Chris? <laughs> if I can verbal you. <laughs> he looks at me with expectation. Um, so <laughs> it won't surprise listeners. Tell us about the impacts of all this. How, what's this plan going to well, do for Victoria, Chris? Um, so, no, I want to I pick up on the public health thing. So for, for a long time, I've done research into the evolution of the public health movement um, and its, its role in making these sort of paternalistic decisions on our behalf. Um, and uh, very briefly, public health used to be things like draining the swamp. And it used to be things like dealing with um, uh, dealing with viral outbreaks and that sort of thing. So this is squarely, the, the crisis that we have right now is squarely within a traditional public health mindset. It's not about obesity. It's not about non-communicable diseases. It's not about smoking. It's about traditional public health matters. But having said that, for the last couple of decades, public health has moved into those, into that sort of paternalistic, um, non-communicable diseases, focusing on how can we get people to make different decisions about themselves? How can we get them to smoke less, drink less, eat less, what have you, on lots of different margins? And to do that, they've focused, um, they've focused their intention on, on, as you say, on communication, that ultimately is the skill set that they've been developing. How can we get an unwilling population to do something that they would rather not do, drink less, smoke less? Um, and how can we communicate to them that it would be a good idea to change their, change their values? Now, I think what's happened here is that generations of people trained in that mindset have now been directed towards this some traditional public health problem and have adopted the same attitude. And we've spoken about this a couple of times, and I think, Andrew, you've been on the show when we've spoken about it too. Um, the initial manipulative claims about whether we should or shouldn't wear masks are just iconic, which is the, the, the point is that they tell you that it's the wrong thing to do because they've got another goal in mind, which is, you know, a legitimate goal. They want to make sure that there are enough masks for healthcare workers. But they told us that it wouldn't be a good idea for us to wear masks. In fact, masks are useless. And then two months later, of course, they have to back away from that because it um, turns out masks are probably the most effective public health intervention that we can have. Um, I think, I think a, a series of mistakes have been made because of the ideological content of public health as it's developed over the last couple of decades has been applied to this traditional public health crisis. And if they'd been more um, open about the challenges that they face, if they'd been clearer about the, um, the uncertainties that we face, we would have a lot more, of, as Andrew's, Andrew's been pointing out, we would just have a lot more trust in, the, um, in, in, in what is a very challenging environment for them, and we understand that. That said, that said, the public has been um, quite supportive, not just here in Victoria, but in other in other states as well. Most governments have have polled reasonably well on their performance um, until recently. Andrews 
government had polled quite well on it and still enjoys about 50% support in polls specifically on the coronavirus issue. And so I, I, I think, I, I take your point, Chris, I think it's right. Um, but I think that public health uh, industry is embedded in a, in a deeper um, trend that we've seen in our society, which is that we've convinced ourselves that the, the transition from um, a, a, a society that had a greater, a greater share of primary and secondary industry to tertiary service industry, um, we, call us, we call it a knowledge economy. And basically all that means in practice is that people have spent longer in education because when you actually look at the numbers, our so-called knowledge economy is actually a bureaucracy economy. Most of the new jobs, um, by far the most of the new jobs over the last 30 years um, have been created in these kind of government fields of which public health is just one. But health administration is like the biggest growth industry in Australia and has been for a long time, along with things like education um, and the other kind of services that the government delivers. And the, the point that I, I want to make about that is that basically you have a huge section of the population, it's about 28% of all jobs are just in those kind of delivering those kind of government services, plus a lot of the other knowledge economy jobs that are, you know, accountants and um, HR managers and, and all of these people embedded in, in big companies that basically what they do is enforce government regulation. That's effectively what their specialty is. So you have this huge section of the population that is inclined to believe that government regulation, government policy, government action is reasonable because it's created by people like them, it's implemented by people like them, they've all gone through the same process of education which they're inclined to believe leads them to being reasonable people. Um, and so there's this underlying level of, of um, I guess, direct trust in government. Uh, I mean, it's direct in the sense that it's trust in people, people trusting in themselves in a way. And so this is the underlying dynamic, I think. And so we've had, um, this might provide a nice segue. I don't, I don't like mm -hmm. to steal your segue thunder, Scott, but <laughs> we um, actually... I, I can share the glory, Andrew, with um, I've stomped it all, all over it anyway, but we actually have um, put out some, some, some great research the last couple of days. The Australian Bureau of St Statistics has um, released some of its latest economic figures, and so our uh, gun economic researchers, uh, Kian Hussey and Kurt Wallace, have been crunching the numbers. Um, and in particular, I'd like to just draw attention to this, this one today because it gets directly to the point that I was making just now, which is that, as Kian points out, Australia's uh, recession Australia, and, and the recovery coming out of it is um, developing or has developed a K shape, um, which is that there's one arm, one part of the economy that's going up and another part that's going down. And the divide is basically who's in the public sector. They're going up. They've never been stronger. Um, this is what this is what Keen said. Bureaucrats and unelected health officials have not incurred any of the costs of their reckless lockdown measures, yet they decide when and how the private sector workforce can go back to work. The bureaucrats have never been in a healthier position. So the the um, and I think that's uh, just a, a terrific piece of analysis and it, and it gets at this, I think at what you're getting at too, Chris, is that there's this um, segment, I guess, of the population that has a um, uh, an interest in the way government delivers its services, but also the way it talks about um, those services and, and, and how we think about those services as reasonable or otherwise. Yeah, the, the other thing about it, um, and you know, Chris, uh, actually then going back to the inside. So um, uh, in this business of risk communication, uh, to the extent that there is an evidence base for the sort of things that public health communication professionals worry about, they talk about things like the way people perceive risk because ultimately all public health communication is either about um, there is a serious risk that you're not taking seriously or there's actually a low-level risk that you're taking too seriously and you, your communication interventions are always addressed to, to remedy those things and to bring them in into line one way or another. Um, What's actually happening here is that the foundation on which we've built is this, it, it is a misperception of risk, but it's in the opposite direction. So um, coronavirus is really shitty. You don't want to get it. I'm not going to argue about that. I'm not, you know, um, you'd, you'd rather not have it, all, all other things being equal. 
Um, but, you know, all the, all the studies of, if you ask Americans how many people they think have, you know, been really sick with coronavirus, I think it's like, you know, 10, 20% of the population, you know, there's the orders of magnitude, all over, and this happens all over the world, orders of magnitude, um, uh, to, uh, overestimates of, 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 the, of the incidence of coronavirus, the proportion of people who get sick, the proportion of people who die. Um, uh, we have... The, the media plays a role in what's called the social amplification of risk. Um, we have this obsessional focus on the hardest cases uh, that just scares the shit out of people. Um, and that's, and that, that's, that's still the case for a big majority of the Victorian population. A lot of the, the Dan bots that we see on, on, on social media, a lot of it's manipulation, but a lot of it's g people who are genuinely just terrified of what coronavirus could do um, if it's you know if we let it rip, which um, and but instead of addressing those fears, um, like think of the, the the mental health impacts of just having a terrified population. Quite apart from and then piling on top of that isolation and everything else in Victoria, instead of actually trying to get people to have a reasonable view of the risks that we're trying to manage collectively as a society, they have an advertising campaign to make people more scared. They thought that the way to deal with what they thought was complacency, which is people just being um, constantly told, no, you can't do that, no, you can't leave your house, they thought the way to do that was to have an advertising campaign to focus on the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, the people who actually got terribly, terribly sick and have had lingering effects that have lasted for some months, in a way that many, many diseases have lingering effects that last for some months. So they actually filmed that and put it on TV just to make sure that if you weren't already shit-scared, you were definitely going to be shit-scared after that. So how, how dare they talk about public health communication based on understanding of risk when they're actually exacerbating the exact phenomena, the social amplification of risk, that's part of the problem. So I'm... Isn't, but to be fair to them, they're also running the Are You OK campaign. So, well, thanks, Dan. I am OK. Yeah, yeah. great. Isn't, isn't, isn't this a hard conversation <laughs> to have because a assessment of the um, risks of COVID-19 is very, very quickly dismissed as, um, well, you know, you're callous, you want grandparents to die or something horrifying like that. Um, I think to take, to take the tone, just uh, to, to, to lift up the conversation to tad, I've been thinking about this um, quite a bit recently. Um, this is the first major global pandemic that has intersected with a um, trend that some sociologists in the 1990s used to call the risk society. So there was a sociologist called Ulrich Beck and he described risk society means it's a society that measures choices by the riskiness of those choices. And, he, and uh, as he saw it, more and more we are focusing on the dangers of certain things, not, not the certainty of danger, but the risk of danger. So he would apply it to, because um, this was the 1990s, he was talking about, well, the risk of genetically modified food, the risk of nuclear power. Suddenly we elevate risk as the, as the primary currency by which we make policy choices. Um, and this strikes me as, as a very powerful description of what's going on right now. Now, I'm a child of that risk society, right? I think we all are, and we are very concerned about about those risks and 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 we our, our mindset is in that space if if the risk society thesis is correct but it 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 we're, we're finding it really hard to assess the the dangers of this and we're finding it really really hard to assess the trade-offs because both sides of the trade-off are bad and um uh when when economists in australia have been trying to talk about this so for instance um gd foster has been trying to talk about the um, idea of looking at this as a trade-off thing, they get completely shattered down and they sound callous. And if you can talk about talk about valuing individual lives, again, that sounds really utilitarian and, and, and callous, but it is a very powerful lens by which we can assess these dangers. Um, uh, and, and I don't think the public, health the public health profession hasn't been talking to us about the risks of smoking or the risks of eating too much or of um, even driving fast. This is this is an old decade old tradition now. You you talk about the worst possible case scenario as the reason that you shouldn't do something. Now the worst possible case scenario is possible by definition, but it's not the sole um, uh, factor that's going on when we make choices.
I think that's um, right. I, yeah. I, I think that's a real. I think that's a really good point uh, because it, it is the a pandemic that intersects with. I mean, a, a related phenomenon um, is this basically that over over the course of um, you know that same period, the last thirty years, last couple of generations, the um, we've sort of whittled away at the idea of of self reliance, um, the idea that. Um, the individual and the family are self-contained units um, that, you know, are robust in and of themselves. We have a kind of therapeutic society that um, that basically treats us all one way or another as a, as patients, as, as as you know, tries to um, erase whatever pathologies that's diagnosed in all of us, and that's we've all become. Um, weaker as a result um and that's why you have a certain segment of the population um who basically um sits around or it seems to they sit around on twitter um in near hysterics for most of the morning and then they hug their tvs when the dear leader comes on for his morning briefing and they like they they sit there in his glow um and it's basically because they've been they've been trained to to think of whatever strength they might possess as being external to them or sourced from external sources and not something that they have within themselves. And so having created a, a, a society that really, um, in which even talking about something like self-reliance sounds kind of like some sort of crackpot meme, um, you know, that's, the, that's what we've done. And now they've turned around and said, well, everyone has to stay at home trapped in your, in your little apartment by yourself. Um, well, of course, people don't have the, you know, of course, it's going to exacerbate whatever um, underlying, um, oh, well, it's going to create a mental health problem for people, and it's going to exacerbate other problems that already exist. Um, basically, because having whittled away at the resources for dealing with hardship, the government has now created a massive hardship, and and, blame, yeah, look, and blames people it, for it, not dealing with it. I mean, I mean, the the horrible thing is that. I mean, I've talked about it in the most abstract sense. Um, so, you know, the, the, these changing attitudes, the risk that are decades, if not a century old, have ended up being that so, you know, the three of us on this podcast are in curfew right now. We're subject to a curfew that doesn't have very clear public health basis, as, as Scott, you've mentioned, the government has admitted. Um, uh, and, and there are genuine real world consequences and um look i'm setting up a little segue for you scott or andrew if you want to talk about the um some of the police action that's um having uh, stomped all over one thing just the last week um uh no you did the last one so well um it is remarkable actually chris just to think uh, so we're recording on on wednesday we record on wednesdays and and uh of course we finished recording last wednesday and then it was in the late afternoon that we we saw the footage coming out of Ballarat where a uh, pregnant mother, Zoe Lee Bueller, um, was live streaming uh, the act of being arrested by the Victoria Police, uh, not knocking on the door saying, can we come in, but having just entered the house, um, as they are empowered to do under our state of emergency legislations, the, the martial law. Um, she was standing there in her pyjamas. She explained that she was pregnant and was going off to... Uh, had an ultrasound appointment in an hour. Uh, and the police proceeded to put her in handcuffs. Um, and there was various conversations, which most of the listeners, I think, will, will have seen. Uh, but this was deeply, deeply shocking uh, to, uh, well, many Victorians. Um, I must admit the, the social media reaction from the uh, Dan, Dan Botts and the hysterics uh, who thought that she got what she deserved um, was scary. But it's certainly uh, more eyes were opened as a result of that than perhaps anything else that's happened in Victoria recently in terms of what it means when you lose your freedoms, what it means when you lose your liberties, what it means when you empower a police force um, to do basically whatever it wants. Um, so that was that was a heck of a day, and 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 a lot more debates opened up since then, Andrew. And 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 basically, marching into your home to arrest you in front of your children for something you have said that contravenes supposedly what may not even be a cr you know you may not have even committed a crime. Um, the crime is incitement. 
But um, what Zoe Lee Bueller is accused of inciting is the breaching of a health regulation, um, which, may, which is unlawful behaviour, but is not a crime as such. Um, and so I think that's... Andrew, do you mind just explaining that just for... Um uh, the, the not very bright people like myself. Well, it's it's so <laughs> basically the the health restrictions that were under the social social distancing, wearing the masks, all the things that um, actually in her post, Zoe Bueller suggested people not to do at this protest. You know, she said keep social distancing, make sure you wear your mask. We don't want to cause any trouble. We just want to communicate um, that we don't agree. Uh, but anyway, that that notwithstanding, um, there there is at least an, an argument that I have heard that. Um, the, the that this is actually quite a novel reading of the crime of incitement um, uh, because what is being incited is not, you know, murder or something that is, you know, a crime covered by the Crimes Act but um, basically um, a regulation that exists under a power um, delegated from the parliament. Um, so See, I think I, I, yeah, so I'm used to thinking of protest as a form of speech. Um, based on you know, my reading of the history of freedom of speech. Um, and so it appears on the face of it that she's being accused of inciting an act of speech, which of course hasn't happened yet. So so it's a um, she is inciting, using her own speech, others to use their speech um, uh, to, to make a statement. Now, the you could say, if you are um, trying to excuse the government's action on this or the police action on this, is that, well, they weren't stopping her from speaking, they were stopping her from gathering, but the act of gathering was itself speech because, of course, we're not allowed to gather. Yeah. The act of gathering was a, you know, unlawful protest, but it was an act of of speech but itself. I, so even, I find yeah. it very, very hard to I think it's, even, I I think think it's even worse than that. I think, I think um, that at its broadest, what's being alleged um, is that any time you uh anytime you speak out against a government regulation you are inciting people to breach that regulation and therefore it's a crime that's what's being alleged at its broadest that, that that is that is the nub of it that that's why it's it's so outrageous it is one thing there goes my career well yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean think well, about well, other, other unlawful second. acts that you might be accused of inciting people to breach would be for example the um the provisions of um anti-discrimination law if you said i don't agree with that i think people should be free to say what they whatever they want whether it's you know racist or otherwise um then theoretically i mean are you inciting people to say racist things i mean it's 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 very similar i mean you start when you when you look at the form of the argument that's being presented here it's very broad and and, and that's quite and that's that's just one aspect of this that's apart from being handcuffed in your house you know that's apart from the wild lack of proportion that we saw i mean at the very least mm. what happened was and i think um uh, zoe bueller herself said it exactly right which is if they were really concerned they could have picked up the phone and said take down your post you we, mm. we think you're mm. probably in breach of the law and she said she would have deleted it which i'm, I'm sure anyone receiving that mm. phone call would have and there's that that's a, that would be even if we if we accepted the legitimacy of the whole thing that mm. would be a proportionate way to deal with it but that's not what happened so we've got there's multiple things yeah, going on here it depends is which, the problem which, is the problem here that um just to step back a bit is the problem here that the situation is out of control so the government is trying to do something that it doesn't have the um liberal legitimacy to do, by which I mean that they are trying to prevent us from doing things, but in order to prevent us from doing things, it means they have to crack down on other things that we think are fundamental liberties like. Well, I would like look speech. at it, I would look like, at it, I would look at it uh, probably slightly differently um, through a slightly different ideological lens and say that what we're rubbing up against now is that the um, the laws that they've created, the regulations they've created around this are just so wildly at odds with people's habits, the way they're accustomed to living here in Victoria, that uh, it jars. And I, I don't see how anyone who has grown up in this society of ours could have looked at that video and not just felt a mix of anger and fear. Mm. I mean, those were the two main emotions. Was, was, uh, anger, because 
what is happening in you know is mm. this really victoria um, i actually didn't know i someone posted this video on our slack here at work um and my immediate response was i i replied to him i said is this real because it took me about 30 minutes to mm. even accept that this is something that would happen um and it was just so wildly at odds with my sense of of normal life in victoria and then of course you start you know looking at the consequences of it and you start feeling fearful or at least i did um about what this entailed and then you know a couple of days later we had um you know some some um elderly women sitting in a park and the police come over i don't know they might not have been wearing masks or something but anyway you certainly don't need three or four cops standing over elderly women and one of them gets her phone out and one of the cops snatches it off her and she's you can't take my stuff and actually he can actually he can uh, and uh, and they're now setting up mobile surveillance units in outside parks because um, um, there's like there's not enough CCTV cameras in the state already. Um, so the there are mobile units. Uh, police and local councils are cooperating, you know, just to make sure that uh, you know, oh, God knows what they what they're actually doing. But it's it's and then you get these low rent quasi politicians who claim to be police chiefs and they come out and they're like oh we're absolutely happy with how this was conducted you know you know snatching that phone was necessary to effectuate the arrest no no it wasn't it was it was necessary to keep the arrest off tv yes and i like you i like the use of the word effectuate yeah yeah and and actually and we won't i think that was the word he used and in in the interest of time uh yeah the the modern version of of plod this you know progressive idiot um, uh, speak, um, uh, and we won't even get into, on the one hand, um, wave through Black Lives Matter, bend the knee, and on the other hand, do this. Um, because I, I, I want to come back uh, in the interest of time. I, I don't want to lose the point about um, the Premier's press conferences. Um, so for those who don't know, this, this has now re- reached the heights of absurdity um, where every day, uh, we're now up to about 65 days or something like that, I think, um, you start, you know, in the morning on your social feed, you start to get this, uh, you know, Channel 7 News Melbourne, you know, Premier's press conference starting soon. There might be like up to an hour and a half of that. They will literally have a live feed of an empty room. And there are people watching this. There, there are like reacts and comments and all sorts of things waiting for the Premier to appear. And... Um, I mean, the, the, the thing itself is unwatchable. I admire my colleagues and anyone who can actually sit through the thing. Um, and, and some of us are trying to get some work done. But, I mean, this is unprecedented and, and, and deeply, deeply creepy, I think. Um, and, of course, it wreaked peak, peak stupidity as he was approaching 50 in a row. And, uh, you know, there was sort of this, are you, are you okay, Dan? It's okay to take a day off. And, and, and the Dan bots were like, oh, amazing leadership. He's, he's fronted up every day for 50 days. Well, actually, amazing leadership might have been stepping back and actually having a look at the situation and going to seek some advice other than the same, seeing the same people every day mm. and saying the same things. And, and leadership is, um, and we'll, we'll talk about it, but this is this man- media manipulation, so the entire Victorian press gallery, and remember, parliamentary press galleries have become less and less relevant in the state parliaments around Australia. Um, uh, state news is irrelevant. But this has given them, uh, has made them once again the conduits of information to the Victorian people. They're the only ones who can ask Dan Andrews questions. For about 40 of those 50 days, they did not ask any hard questions at all. Um, even after the roadmap, even the Australian... Um, the reports that uh, came from the Victorian correspondents were like, well, yeah, actually, yeah, he probably had no alternative. Actually, the numbers were pretty clear. I can see what Andrews is trying to do. This is so inside the bubble, uh, literally in this darkened room in, the, in, in, a, in a dungeon of a bloody uh, public building. I just think it, it's terribly, terribly creepy and totalitarian to manipulate the media in this way. It's not a sign of his leadership. It's a sign of the determination to control the media narrative. And we saw that actually at um, one of the, the protests was um, a right-wing rabble-rouser, Avi Yamini. Um, I think he's also a perennial candidate depending on which, which um, electorate you're in. Um, he's like the opposite of Zoe. This is 
Blake, um, Blake, who's sort of used to being arrested, but and it was <laughs> yeah, but it was it was very interesting that the footage of him being arrested at this protest because he was actually arrested in the middle of doing a piece to camera, um, and he said he had a permit, which I'm sure he did. Um, but it's this kind of this role of the media as gatekeepers and 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 the the political class having a an interest in only certain media counting as media, and of course, you know, over the last twenty years, twenty twenty five years, what we what we've found out is that media gatekeeping is the stupidest of all of the gatekeeping that we have in our society based, you know, because whereas something like the public health, profet- the epi- epi- like an epidemiologist actually has some sort of credential, some sort of training that you and I don't have. <laughs> but this is not true, right? There's no difference between um, your average punter going down to a rally to record a video um, and what the media do. Right? It's not special. Yeah. It's not special. It shouldn't be treated as special. And yet it has to be treated as special if you are going to do what the what yeah. Dan Andrews so and the political class want to do, which is control so, the So flow. what we actually saw was the uh, the only decent interview that um, in terms of actually asking the Premier some, some hard questions came from uh, the former AFL footballer Luke Darcy on, on radio. So no one from the press gallery was going to ask him any tough and questions. that makes Darcy a class trader as well, by the way, because the AFL is so deeply in bed with this <laughs> government. And you can basically hear Eddie Maguire sort of spluttering in the background. Of, but don't, you know, don't go too well, hard. This is Dan Andrews. You you know, know. He'll never come back on our show. Yeah. And, and, uh, Eddie Maguire, whose brother is a, a long-time uh, Labor MP. But the Darcy was – I mean, and he's never that interesting on a football broadcast. Never. <laughs> <laughs> but he was – I mean, he was very good. He'd come with his facts and he was like – you know, yeah, Premier, I'm astounded to hear you say it wasn't even a 50-50 decision. There's just been this study done in the Lancet suggesting that extreme lockdowns have the opposite effect and do not work. So we can debate all this, but the point is these, these are propositions that are not being put yeah, anywhere else. actual questions. Actual questions and, and, and went in hard and, and, and talked about the mental health impacts, whereas you, ha- you have these... Uh, now, you want to see Stockholm Syndrome, think of the Victorian Parliamentary Press Gallery. <laughs> but I mean, so I, I think these Dan Andrews press conferences are actually doing us all a very bad disservice because he's well praised for, I mean, he spoke for two hours on Sunday, right? And he's well praised for just, you know, he will he will stand there until they He'll be out. at Castro length by the end of this. Um, It'll be 24 <laughs> hours of just but, um, sweat but pouring off. What, what he ends up talking about is the specific details of the rules that he's introducing the very specific, um, you know, so what is the what is the nature of the singles bubble? Can the, can the other person in the singles bubble, do they have to be single themselves? All this sort of stuff. And, and I understand that's important, right? Because, you know, we're all in Victoria and we feel that we need to know, well, what are we legally allowed to do tomorrow? Or what are we legally allowed to do in, in a month or so? But it doesn't get us much further to understanding the reasoning behind these decisions, which is why. In fact, we're, we're acting like the curfew thing was um, is a surprise this week. It wasn't. In fact, the um, chief medical officer had said um, some weeks ago that the curfew was not a necessarily a public health measure. And Scott, I remember us having this conversation on this podcast. Oh, it's like Andrew says, mate. Just you lose track. You lose track of time. <laughs> we had the conversation on this podcast. This is, this I is, made this, the point this is like that a, a lot of these rules. This is like living sorry, in a Christopher stuff. Nolan movie. <laughs> it's like, like folding in on itself. Yeah. <laughs> it just keeps going. Um, we had the conversation on this podcast that I, my assessment of the rules was that a lot of those rules weren't about public health. They were about trying to make it easier for the cops to enforce the previous set of rules. In fact, that is the story of stage four. That is why we are in stage four, because in the police's assessment, the assessment of Victoria Police, they found it really hard to enforce some of the stage three rules. Now, at the start of stage four, they were really, the government was actually pretty open about that. But but again, to your point, you know, that we, we're we all now living in a fishbowl and we can't remember anything that happened seven seconds ago, because we're not sure whether it was seven years ago or not. Um, uh, all this stuff just, just gets a life of its own, which is... Why I think we're in the situation we are today. I think the government has backed itself into a corner. They have um, they they they've made multiple open errors that they apologise for on the stand every single day. Quarantine is one of them, um, or the failure of hotel quarantine is Con- one of them. The failure tracing. of contact tracing is 
the which, other one. Which, 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 was, which, which they denied was a problem, have never apologised for. Uh, but, yeah, now maybe we'll do something about it and we'll go to New well, I, I, rem I remember reading these reports in April or so that we had one of the world's best contractation teams. We had thousands of staff ready to contact trace every person. Turns out that that was a disaster and they're only now getting around to um, uh, setting it up. They get, finally gave Salesforce a call or something. Um, I, 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 I just don't... I think <laughs> this is going to be an episode that marks all of us and we are going to debate it forever. But there's no world in which we could conclude that the government made the right decisions at the tail end of the pandemic. Again, I understand the uncertainty of March. I understand the hard decisions in March. We are not in March anymore. Yeah, contract tracing, actually, their latest excuse, the Premier actually said, oh, yeah, Salesforce did approach us, but that was in March and we had a lot on. <laughs> and, oh, yes, they did. <laughs> and I can appreciate a, a little bit of overload in, in March. Like, I could almost be sympathetic. But April, May, June, while the other yeah. states were getting Salesforce integrated into their contact tracing regimes, the IPA can manage to install Salesforce, yeah. but the Victorian government, all these... Thousands of you yeah, well, the point yeah, I mean, these two-hour press conferences, you know, the materials don't write themselves. Yeah, oh, and by the way, this 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 is actually <laughs> no no premier. Um, the state was not overloaded in March. You were overloaded because what this is all the chickens coming home to roost. Um, they've he's centralised all decision-making authority with himself. Um, uh, Parliament ceased to function. Cabinet ceased to function. Um, um, uh, there's, there's not even a, a variety of health on, advice on, on that. Like I know, I know, sort of secondhand um, from people who are around the place that um, so Andrews has about a hundred staff for himself. Um, so the premier has about a hundred staff, and all um, cab cabinet submissions, cab subs as they're called, everything that gets developed for cabinet has to go through the premier's office. Um, and he's got basically an um, unprecedented level of, of interest um, in everything that the bureaucracy does. Um, you know, and, and, and that's not a great model. That might be a peacetime model, but this is, you know, they keep saying we're at a war with the virus. Well, that's not the most flexible model for, as, as we found out, right, that's not the best way to go about something as complex as this. Well, when, when we actually... The last time we actually fought a global war in Australia, not only did Parliament continue to sit, but there was a war cabinet which involved the Leader of the Opposition. Uh, Menzies invite, uh, invited John Curtin into the into a war cabinet. Um, you know, the, the, the institutions that have served us so well, one by one, have been cast aside. Parliament's been cast aside. Um, uh, cabinet government's been cast aside. Free speech has been cast aside. Um, uh, uh, Come on, remind me. What's what's the thing that prevents police barging through your door? You know the uh, uh, home is your civil, castle. Are, are you referring to civil liberties? Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> Let's call them civil liberties. All all the institutions that we've patiently built up over over centuries have just been thrown away, and 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 it's it's so galling that not only is that galling in its own right. I mean, we should. Um, maintain all of those institutions, even if they were the most inefficient and stupid way to manage things on earth, um, because they have legitimacy as elements of liberal democracy. But we've cast all them aside, and what we actually have is not better decision-making, it's dysfunctional decision-making. This is exactly what we saw in Soviet Russia and China. The more you centralise power, the harder it is for actual information about what's actually going on to reach the top. How many people do you reckon are giving Dan Andrews the advice now to say, actually, you know, sorry, Premier, when you were blathering on about supercomputers, it was clear that you actually have no idea um, how modelling works or what goes in. And here's a list of epidemiologists that is actually saying that your modelling is crap. Like, who, who's going to go in and tell him that now? Yeah. And this is, like, all, all government, all, all policy has a, an element of... All rules, I would say at that general, all rules have an element of faith in them, that you, you abide by a rule because you, th you, you have faith that the longer-term consequences of you and everyone else abiding by this rule will, will work out for the better. That's, that's generally what we tell ourselves. And when rules get replaced 
what you're being asked to place your faith in is the ruler. And, and that is a very precarious situation. It's much less stable over time than people having faith in rules um, because when the performance of the ruler starts to diminish and people's confidence in him starts to diminish, then you end up, you're on the verge of, of disorder. And I would say that's what we are on the verge of here in Victoria. If people, if other people are as uh, angry, as drained, um, as, as worried as I am, then I would say that we are uh, on the verge of people just simply stop, they're just going to stop listening, stop abiding by the rules um, because the rules have been hmm. weakened. At, at, the, at, the, at best, they're not really they, rules. At best, a sullen compliance. Yeah. And, and, and that's the and it's it is it is where for our audience who aren't in Victoria, there is something very oddly psychologically wearing about this situation. Even if, like me, I'll say this as a per, you know, on a personal note, even if like me, you're you're one of the very lucky people who's been able to continue his work from home um, and been able to continue to provide for his family. There's something very wearing about knowing how limited your horizons are in an artificial way, that there's someone out there that is, uh, to a large extent, in control of your circumstances. And I can't imagine how that feeling is when it's compounded with worry for your livelihood, your family and everything else. Um, the people who haven't been able to visit sick relatives in hospital, um, people who've missed the last few moments with their dying parents, things like that. Um, we're at a, I think, at a very emotionally fraught moment in Victoria, and I, I would, um, on a very serious note, I would encourage the government to be a lot more mindful of that when they start putting out rules or the roadmap, and then the very next day they have to start walking back what they've written because they were too vague. They're playing with people's very deepest emotions, I think. Indeed. Uh, Chris, I suggest that uh, nothing we could say could actually improve on what Andrew just said and uh, we might wrap it up there and uh, just uh, brief, briefly... On that really, really happy note. Oh, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry. It's just, it's very, it is very hard to keep... No, no, it's very well said. And you see, when we, when we put well out the now. social media of this, it's all uh, smiling and everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, so well, you do have to laugh. I was on a, I mean, I was on a, I was on a podcast the other day talking about... Um, a new book, which I can talk about um, in due course, uh, but but uh, it was with the Cato Institute, and they um, at the end of it asked me, so you know, what? Well, you're in Australia, and um, uh, so tell us, what sort of policies do you think Australia has done that um, we could adopt here in the United States? <laughs> and I just burst out laughing, and I said, look, <laughs> mate, you, we are in absolute lockdown right now <laughs> do not ask me what policies we can export <laughs> <laughs> i don't want that on my conscience yeah <laughs> well this is yeah, this this is our um psychological warfare how to how to destroy other people other countries economies <laughs> chris shall we go through the motions of uh, uh, on going through what we've been watching, reading, and listening to. Oh, that's, a, that's a great build-up. So, um, <laughs> it's right. so, so, so as we've discussed many times, my my um, cultural consumption has been devolving <laughs> the last couple of months. So I've been watching... You'd be um, devastated uh, that the Kardashians are wrapping the, up after 14 years. <laughs> which is the Netflix um, uh, family comedy, I guess, about a um, family, a very wealthy family, that um, is defrauded their money and is sent to live or uh, find out the only place that they can live is in a motel in a country town called Schitt's Creek that they purchased as a joke some years ago and had forgotten that it was the only thing that the um, uh, that hadn't been taken from them because it was viewed to be worthless or something along those lines. Anyway, so this is a bit of a um, cult it now the thing that you have to know about this show is that it is not good to start it is actually significantly worse initially and builds up not as a comedy but as actually quite an affecting family drama in its later seasons and the recommendation is watch the first episode so that you get the um get the the, the sort of theme of it you understand the basic plot points and who the characters are and then skip to the second season 
Um, look, it's not a masterpiece. It's not the sort of thing that we're going to be talking about for are you, are you serious, come, Chris? Right that now, a show called popular. a show called Shit's Creek is not a masterpiece. Like, <laughs> 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 no, I, I, I hate to break it to you. I'm um, shocked. It's not. It's not the artwork that you might be looking for. But I don't think, to be honest, I, again, we're in Melbourne. I don't think anybody here is looking for anything more than fluff. Um, uh, we've all we all had these grand plans about what we we're going to do in in lockdown number two, and I am just watching cheap Netflix family comedies. Yeah, well, I know exactly the feeling. After when I finish when I finish writing later at night, I sometimes watch like old Law and Order episodes, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> because you, you want something, you want something really, you want something dumb. Um, and and speaking <laughs> speaking of which, I also have a, a comedy. I haven't I haven't been watching that much consistently. I actually struggled for a, a pick, but um, I did watch um, it's on Foxtel. Uh, Righteous gem, the Righteous Gemstones, which is. A weird title, but it's the the gemstone is the family name. It's about um, uh, John Goodman plays. Uh, he's like one of these uh, televangelist, pre, you know, pre- mm. preachers in the United States in the in the southern United States, um, and he's got his idiot degenerate family um, who are wrecking the whole family the family business. Um, so his his oldest son is played by Danny McBride, who wrote the series, um, and this is a this is one of Danny McBride's series. He does these series with um, the directors, normally um, Jody Hill, um, and people might have seen Eastbound and Down, which is where Danny McBride played a washed-up baseballer, um, and one where he played uh, a series where he, called Vice Principals, where he played a vice principal who gets in a war with another vice principal, um, and it's so it's a very which, is, which sounds funny on its face. It is. It, Vice, yeah, I probably, think I might have caught a few episodes. Of probably, it, yeah. probably those other ones work a little bit better than this one. But you know, it's like very. It's a very dark, um, somewhat obscene sense of humour. Um, and so, if you're not on Danny McBride's wavelength, like because they play things very straight and dark, but they're like, but it's absurd. Um, and so, but if you're on his wavelength, this one's probably worth checking out while you're in lockdown because it won't challenge you too much. <laughs> Very good. Um, and John Goodman is great. And uh, John Goodman's always great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So mine, um, also been watching TV, but actually this one is good. Um, uh, Raised by Wolves is a, an HBO production, which I'm watching on, on Foxtel. It's, uh, it's sci-fi. Uh, it's been eagerly awaited. The production values are very high. Um, it's been promoted as being from Ridley Scott, of course, director of Aliens, uh, but it was actually created by Aaron Guzikowski, but he did get Ridley Scott in to shoot the first two episodes of this 10-episode series. Um, the setup is, um, it's, I think, um, you know, 200 years from now, Earth's managed to destroy itself in, uh, in a war between the, um, uh, the atheists on the one hand and on the other, the, uh, the Mithraics. Um, which is this weird sort of fusion of uh, Christianity with um, uh, the Mith- uh, Mithraic uh, mystery cults of, of the late Roman Empire. All I all I know about that is from reading Julian by Gore Vidal. But anyway, go figure. So they they have the, a, a, instead of a crucifix, they have the, a symbol of the sun. So hopefully later in later episodes, um, as they're released, we get to find out a little bit more of the backstory around this. But it is high sci-fi. Um, the uh, the atheists have, have used these uh, androids um, to escape the Earth and to take um, uh, uh, some some embryos. They raise to raise some children because the Earth is destroyed, and this little colony will 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 hatch on this new planet. Unfortunately, the um, the Mithraics have also got an arc, so they're all they also arrive. Um, so that's the setup. High sci-fi, very good production values. Travis Fimmel um, is in it. He was, of course, Ragnar Lothbrok in Vikings, and he is amazing. I think to watch as an actor, he's absolutely hypnotic. He, he does the same thing in every part, but it's like there's a there's a barroom fight going on bet- behind his eyes all the time. And, and, and his sort of face twitches and he, his body moves and you just never know what he's going to come up with, you know, compelling to watch. Uh, and then Amanda Collin, who's, I think, Danish, um, plays the main android called Mother, um, not always maternal. But again, she's doing that, that acting trick of uh, uh, acting as a robot trying to impersonate a human. 
and 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 getting into the that uncanny territory and she does it very very well so this is like got 8.6 on imdb so if you get a chance to watch uh raised by wolves that is definitely escapist not many laughs <laughs> not many laughs <laughs> But uh, I think on behalf of all the movie nerds out there, I'll just I will just say uh, Ridley Scott did Alien and James Cameron did Aliens. So thank you for that. Just check that out there for Uh, them, because like you know, anal. What's the word? We wouldn't want letters. We wouldn't want letters. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Um, So that was it. You have been listening to Looking Forward. I don't think I've mentioned... Actually, I haven't mentioned I am, by the way. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Uh, This is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au where you can find out about our work, including um, some of the work that we've been doing um, around Zoe Lee Bueller and her outrageous arrest, uh, which we've been talking about through various channels. A um, big thank you to my fellow panellists, Chris Berg via Zoom, Andrew Bushnell here in the studio. Thanks, uh, a big thank you also to uh, Josh in the control room. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.